0: Good morning, and welcome, and welcome to those who are viewing live on the kingdom set. Ahlin, Wasalin bikum, merhaba. Okay, I did that. <clears throat> I was very nervous about that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that Your love and Your Word knows no geographical boundaries. There's no culture or language in which You cannot penetrate and speak into the lives of people. And so, Father, we ask that You would come and do that for us this morning. Here in this place and around the world, that these words would be of you and from you, and that your word would bring life to all who have an ear to hear. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, they say that when a person loses uh, one of their senses, that their other senses are heightened. When a person loses their sight, their sense of hearing or their sense of smell and touch, those are all heightened. Uh, Think of some of the blind musicians that we know so well, Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, Andrea Bocelli. Uh, Their ears are so attuned to music and pitch. They understand music at, at sometimes it seems a different level than those with sight. The blind have to use their hearing at a a much sharper level uh, than those with sight. The blind have to piece together their surroundings with greater effort than those with sight. And as we conclude our series on Luke chapter 18, we are introduced to a blind man who has to use something other than sight to find truth. Uh, And what a fitting conclusion for us in this series. First, this is a a public miracle. Uh, In fact, it is the last public miracle that Jesus performs before going to the cross uh, as it relates to uh, healing uh, and people. Remember, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem, and He has told the disciples, Why? That it is to fulfill the prophecies, to fulfill the Scriptures, that he is going to have to suffer and die, but that he will rise again. Secondly, something we can notice and where we will be spending our time this morning is that blind Bartimaeus, as he is referred to in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 20, he personifies all the previous chapters that we have been looking at In Luke chapter 18, I don't think, again, I don't think we could have asked for a better conclusion to a series than to essentially meet a man who provides an overview of all of the things that Jesus has been teaching in this chapter, a display of what kingdom life looks like, a picture of how a kingdom person sees Christ and sees themselves, And so let's look at this passage together to see how all of that works out. And we pick up in verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. Now this is no ordinary crowd. This blind man will have heard pilgrimages and and pilgrims heading up to Jerusalem at this time of year, year after year after year. But, but this time it's different. There are massive crowds and they are filling the streets more than he is used to or perhaps more than he is expecting. And so the blind man asks, what is happening? What's happening here? And they tell him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by and that is how they recognize him as a man. His name is Jesus. He is from Nazareth. And here we can say that the blind see what the seeing cannot. Because as we know, he's not just Jesus of Nazareth. But once the people tell him, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And here we see the first personification of what Jesus taught from Luke 18, and it is the tax collector. From the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the blind beggar is asking for mercy the way that our tax collector asked for mercy. He understands his situation before God, he recognizes his own inadequacy. He's a blind beggar. Everyone looks down on him. He is one peg above a tax collector in that society in that day. Remember, the tax collectors were viewed as traitors. They would cross the street just to avoid them. They would not make eye contact because they had sided with the Romans. But these two groups, the tax collectors and the beggars, are the two lowest pegs in the culture. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, The Pharisee comes into the temple and he stands and he lists off all of the things that he has done to earn eternal life, to deserve uh, entrance into the kingdom of God. And he, he rattles off all the legalistic rules that he uses as justification. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. He uses comparison uh, to show God how much more he deserves the kingdom than anyone else, more than anyone, especially this tax collector. And he goes back to his home unjustified before God, unjustified before God. The tax collector, meanwhile, stands at the back of the temple and cries out, "'Have mercy on me, a sinner.'" I cannot do this on my own. My good works are a stench to you. I deserve punishment before a just God. All I can do is ask for mercy. And not just that you would relent, but that you would make things right before him, that you would propitiate me. And here we have our blind beggar crying out to Jesus the one whom the tax collector needed, the one who would propitiate him. And the blind beggar cries out, not in the temple, but in a crowded street, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice the name that he uses for Jesus. Not Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me, but Jesus, son of David. Why does he use this Phrase. Why does he call him this? This is the messianic title. He knows this. He would know this from his understanding of Scripture. I'm assuming someone would have read to him or if he lost his sight later in life, then he would have read it as a, a younger person. And we read this in the, in the Scriptures, that even in Luke chapter 1, the, what is said of Jesus when Mary is being told uh, by the angel that she will give birth to him, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. It's the phrase that's used for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In fact, even in the next chapter, in chapter 19 of Luke, the people are laying down the palm branches and Jesus is riding in on a donkey. Not exactly the image of a conquering king, is it? And yet they say, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna to the son of David. David, the king whose kingdom was greatest of all those in Israel. Uh, King David, who in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is told by the prophet Nathan that he will have an offspring who will establish his kingdom, a kingdom that will endure forever. And it wasn't Solomon. David's natural-born son. No, the kingdom is divided under Solomon. So it cannot be him. It must be someone else. And so the Jews are looking to see who this Messiah is, who will fulfill this messianic prophecy, who will be this son of David. This blind beggar has faith that the Savior who was promised has now come. He has faith that God's anointed Messiah has come into the world. And amidst all the people who were crowded around Jesus, crowded perhaps to see a miracle, crowded perhaps because they had heard that he had raised someone from the dead in Bethany, crowded like those in John chapter 2 who believed in him, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. In fact, some of these people will be ones that cry out, crucify him. Amidst the crowd, this blind beggar cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, recognizing who Jesus was, that he was the king who would have an everlasting kingdom, and that he could show mercy on those who come to him. Just as our tax collector came pleading for mercy, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We see that the blind beggar Bartimaeus asked for mercy the way the tax collector did, He's also rebuked the way that the children are. Verse 39, those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. They're telling him to be quiet because of his condition. This man has no value in their view. Just like we saw last week, the disciples are looking at the little children, and they have nothing to contribute, and so they think that children will only waste Jesus' time, precious ministry time, and the exact same thing is happening to blind Bartimaeus. He's a beggar. Not only that, he's blind. Where society may be saying, No, God is saying, Yes, who are you to say who Jesus can see and accept and who he cannot? We must never forget that the ground at the foot of the cross is one level. None of us is deserving of salvation or grace or mercy. In fact, I'm going to do a series in a couple of weeks at the 9 o'clock service on Jonah, looking at this issue in greater detail, and we're, I'm going to call it uh, the loveless prophet and the gracious God, because that is the reality. In, in Ephesians, Paul writes, "...for it is by grace that you have been saved." through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that nobody may boast. That is the truth. Blind Bartimaeus asked for mercy the way the tax collector did. He is rebuked the way the children were, and what is his response? But he shouted out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's persistent in his cries to Jesus, just like our persistent widow. Do you remember her? She came before her unjust judge begging for justice. A widow, uh, uh, someone who would almost never have received justice in that day. And blind Bartimaeus does not come begging and nagging as the widow does, but he is persistent in his cries to Jesus the way that she was persistent in her seeking of justice because they both knew where their help would come from. This woman needed her judge to make her situation right. This beggar knows that if Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, then he can make everything right. This isn't like trying to ask the the waiter for the bill or for extra water. Sir, ma'am, excuse me, hello, Hello, this is absolute desperation out of an absolute deep need and a deep recognition for the need that you have. One asks for justice, the other asks for mercy, both of which they cannot attain on their own. They need an outside party to intervene. They need an outside party to grant what it is that they are looking for. Jesus ends the parable with the persistent widow by saying, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And here we have a a man, less than 30 verses later, who says, you are the promised king, the Messiah. Have mercy on me. Our blind beggar asked for mercy the way the tax collector did. He is rebuked. The way the children are, he is persistent the way the widow was. And finally, our blind beggar Bartimaeus was devoted unlike the rich ruler. And here we come to the only two stories that are not an illustration like the children, and it's not a parable like the widow and the tax collector. Both the rich ruler and the blind beggar, were real people who made very real decisions. Both of them come to Jesus, but that's about the extent of their similarities in these two stories. For it is one who sees himself as good. This is so prevalent in our culture today, isn't it? We see atrocities happen and and people do horrible things and then someone says, but he's a good person. We see people that we know, we've got connections with, and they do terrible things and we say, but he's a good person. What is it that's making these people good? You need to understand that man is not inherently good. Man is inherently evil. God is good. That is the only way that it is to be understood. One man sees himself as good while the other knows that he is not. The rich ruler is invited to follow Christ. The beggar is asked by Jesus what he can do for him. Now you may be asking yourself, why is the rich ruler told by Jesus that in order to receive the kingdom, he has to sell all he has and then follow Christ while the blind beggar simply asks for sight and receives it? This seems unfair. This is incongruous. This is, what is this, some sort of cosmic malpractice? Where is the outrage? I have seen pastors struggle to explain this to their congregations. Is it not the condition of the heart? Jesus knew that the rich ruler's stumbling block was his wealth, that he refused to get over it no matter matter what he's asked to give. It, It wasn't the amount that he was asked to give up. It is that he had created an idol out of his wealth. The blind beggar did not have a financial stumbling block. But look at his heart. Jesus stops and calls him to come forward. In Mark's account, it says immediately he throws off his coat and runs to Jesus. I don't want to make too big a point of this, but essentially he chucks the one possession he has away to see Jesus, seeing him with eyes of faith, not his physical eyes. And Jesus asks him, What do you want me to do for you? This man could have said anything. I'm not saying that Jesus would have given him whatever he'd asked. He's not a genie. But the creator of the universe, uh, the firstborn over all creation, has just stopped in the street. And he has just asked the lowest of the low, what do you want me to do for you? Is this not unbelievable? Maybe we're a little too familiar with the story and we take it for granted, but think about this situation. He could have said, give me wealth. I'm tired of begging. I want to be done with my begging. Give me wealth so I no longer have to rely on people's mercy. He could have said, make me a king. Give me power and authority. But instead he asks to see And sight is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61, the very passage that Jesus reads in the synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy as he heads toward Jerusalem to fulfill even greater prophecy, one that will require his life. And in doing so, he will not open physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. The rich ruler calls him good teacher, if you remember from last week. He calls him good teacher because the rich ruler thinks he himself is good based on his works and his supposed keeping of the law. And Jesus calls him out on it because his understanding is flawed and it's broken and he has a misunderstanding and it needs correction. While the blind beggar calls Jesus the son of David and he calls him Lord because he knows he is the redeemer, the Messiah redeemer who has been sent. And he... He needs Jesus, not his works, not what he can contribute, not what he can offer. He needs Jesus and not other things. And the rich ruler walks away sad with all of his money that will eventually vanish. But the blind beggar praises God and follows Jesus. One man has an idol, a stumbling block. The other devotes himself to Jesus. One man has faith. The other is faithless and trusts only in himself. Faith is not required for healing, but it is required for salvation. Jesus tells the blind beggar, your faith has healed you, or the word can be translated, has saved you. And his salvation is evidenced in the fact that he becomes a follower of Christ, following Christ all the way to Jerusalem, where everything that had been prophesied would come to fulfillment. And so here we are with these five teachings from Luke chapter 18. And we're thinking about the kingdom of God and we're, we're asking about eternal life. What do those in the kingdom look like? Are they seemingly upstanding citizens who look like they do so much good for society? who are looked up to for their good deeds and their great wealth or their ability to supposedly keep the law are they good at keeping those who don't fit the look and the ideals of kingdom people outside a fencing of the kingdom so to speak I think Jesus has shown us in these passages that the kingdom belongs to those who have faith and persistence of faith in him. I'm not talking about perfection of faith, but a persistence of faith. The kingdom belongs to those who call out for mercy to him, empty-handed, not boasting. The kingdom belongs to those who receive it and not earn it. The kingdom belongs to those who come to Christ daily, forfeiting, whether a lot or a little, the things that stand in our way to coming to Christ. The kingdom belongs to those who follow and praise Jesus. And so we ask ourselves do we come in here full of pride? Comparing ourselves and our lives to everyone else. Do we come in here thinking that we have done enough on our own? Or that we are good enough? Or that we do our part and God does his little part? Are we riding that fence? Where we're unsure of what we think of all these things. It sounds good, but is it real? Am I willing to give up things to submit my life to Christ? Maybe that is you, and you don't know where you stand with God, but you're curious. Or maybe you have accepted Christ for who he is as Savior and as King and as the beggar calls him, Lord. And you feel that God is trying to teach you something, Teach you to pray and not give up when things are difficult or when things are mundane and ordinary. Remind you that it was not your works that saved you, but it was God's mercy and his grace to show you uh, that the kingdom is for those who receive it and not earn it. Maybe he's trying to tell you that whatever you forfeit for him will be no loss at all. Or maybe you have grown complacent, and all these stories from the Bible and all these things, they just sort of wash over you. It's no new information to me. I know these stories. I've heard them a million times, and you just let it wash over you like nothing. And you want that elation that the blind beggar has when he receives good news, when he receives sight, then let us learn from blind Bartimaeus. It starts and it ends with Christ. The joy comes in recognizing him for who he is, in seeing what he is doing, in allowing him to work in and through us so that we too can rejoice and praise him and walk with him and follow him. That's a kingdom person. Be a kingdom person who allows God to rule in their lives, who allows God to overrule in their lives, and you too will rejoice Following Christ, praising Him. Let's pray. Father, I'm struck by the questions and the points that are made at the end of each of these accounts. For the persistent widow, you asked, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? For the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. For the story with the children, you said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, the story of the rich ruler, you said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive it many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And yet all of these are because of Christ. All of these are because of Christ. how quickly we forget, how quickly we turn to our own devices and our own creative thinking. When you're calling us over and over and over again, even whether we've been a Christian for 10 minutes or 100 years, you're turning us back to Christ. You're turning us back to Christ. You're taking us back to Christ, who is gentle and loving and caring, And you give us a picture here at the end of someone who seemingly doesn't deserve anything in this day and age in which this story was told. And I think the picture is that there should be no one in this room or around the world who hears my voice who thinks this can't be a picture of me. I'm too far beyond. I've done too much. I'm not accepted in my culture or my community. That is a lie. The truth is you're taking us back to Christ. And the question is, will we go? Will we submit our hearts and our lives to him? Oh, Lord, would you do those things? Would you give us hearts that crave Christ, that want to be reminded of his love and his care, his mercy, his graciousness? even for his justice that will come. Take us back to Christ. Take us back to Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen.